My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This is episode 11 of our ongoing series on the twilight years of the Pax Romana, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. Marcus Aurelius is dead. After soldiering on through decades of poor health and near-fatal illnesses, he was done in on the eve of his total victory over the barbarian tribes of Europe by the Antonine Plague, which had already claimed so many of his people. Marcus ruled well as the empire fell apart around him, and historians have often portrayed him as the last gasp of the Pax Romana, keeping his empire together by his excellence and sheer force of will. He was not only a benevolent and kind man, but a smart, strategic thinker and active ruler, and by the end of his life, Rome is in a far better position than it had any right to be. With the major crises of his life endured, we might assume that Rome would go on to rise to even greater heights. But history shows us that when surveying the short and long-term horizons, this was just not to be. The reason? Well... Ancient Romans and modern historians have often said that Rome's fall began with Commodus, Marcus's son and heir. Cassius Dio, a Roman senator and contemporary of Marcus and Commodus, gave us the title of this series when he wrote of the ascension of Commodus with just a few years of hindsight. Our history now plunges from a kingdom of gold to one of iron and rust. As we covered in episode 8, the ascension of Commodus is a far more nuanced story than simply saying that Marcus messed up, and although Commodus may have been Marcus's one major mistake, it's unclear that other emperors would have found a better solution. In any event, filicide was not in Marcus's nature, and with his death, Commodus came to rule. You may have watched Gladiator and seen Joaquin Phoenix knock it out of the park as the psychopathic emperor Commodus. That movie was a complete work of fiction with little relation to actual historical events. But was Commodus as depraved as the movie made him out to be? In this episode, we're going to cover the reign of Marcus's heir and find out if he deserves his reputation. Before we get into that, though, I just want to let you know that two episodes from now, we'll be having a Q&A episode during which I'll answer any questions you have relating to this series. Eventually, these Q&As will be filled with questions from those who support the show financially, but since there are only four of you guys right now, thanks Joe, Jeremiah, Sam, and Cody, I don't think they'll be able to provide an entire episode worth of questions. So even if you're not a financial supporter of the show but want to ask a question, you can do so by sending it to me at andrewperlot at gmail.com. That's P-E-R-L-O-T. Episode 11, Commodus the Antithesis. Commodus was done with Germania, and frankly, he was done being lectured to. His father was dead, and he was emperor now. Yet the indomitable force of Tiberius Claudius Pompeianus, his brother-in-law, stood before him in the command tent, backed by the other old men his father had entrusted him to, his so-called advisors. For some weeks, he'd been in their thrall as they talked about finishing the war. They'd tried to keep him busy in strategy meetings and sitting in on the embassies from the defeated barbarian tribes. His father had so thoroughly destroyed the Marcomannic Alliance that the shattered remnants would be un unable to field a large army for generations. Their lands were so devastated that they'd have trouble feeding themselves this winter, 
much less troubling Rome anytime soon. But he was still squatting in a muddy encampment in the ass crack of Hades, freezing in this godforsaken wasteland. He thought of the warm bathhouses of Rome, of the many comforts of the capital. No, he was done here. He was emperor now, and it was time to go home. He looked back over his shoulder at his entourage, young senator's sons, his favorite Lear players, and an actor he was fond of betting, and thought of the argument he'd been working on with them just to justify leaving this frozen wasteland behind. I have decided that it's time to go home, he told Pompeianus and other advisors, with as much authority as he could muster. For even now, the rich senators of Rome plot and scheme to seize the empire from me. With my father dead, it is necessary for me to be proclaimed in the capital as the new emperor. One of his Lear players stepped forward at this and added, That's the word the couriers are carrying. Commodists must go home and stop the rebellion. I've had a letter from my brother. Pompeianus looked at the Lear player with his piercing eyes, and the young man stepped back, cowed. The old man's gaze next flicked to Commodus, seeing his reasoning for the fabrication it was. Commodus felt a flare of anger. Who was Pompeianus to judge him? Some up-jumped provincial his father had married to his sister? He was emperor now, heir to Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus, and Marcus, the greatest dynasty the Romans had ever known. The time for old men had passed. Princaps, Pompeianus said after a few moments, his voice respectful, but his eyes showing that he was not the slightest bit cowed by the boy emperor. It's normal to want to return home. We miss those we've left there too, he said, gesturing to the men gathered in his tent. But to leave this war unfinished is both disgraceful and dangerous. That course will increase the barbarians' boldness. They will say that we are cowards afraid of fighting and grow ever bolder. And think how glorious it will be to extend the boundaries of the empire to the northern sea. Then you will return home to celebrate a triumph leading barbarian kings in chains through the streets of Rome. The people will cheer you, and the army will forever remember you as their hero. And you have no need to fear a rebellion in Italy. All the most distinguished senators are here in your camp. The entire army surrounds you and protects you. The treasure is here under guard, and consider the loyalty your father's memory has won for you among your people. No, where the emperor is, Rome is. Commodus frowned. He had nothing to counter this argument with. But to carry the war to the northern sea? It had taken his father years just to conquer southern Germania. And for what? There was nothing here worth conquering. No cities, no rich mines, and the people lived in filthy little hovels. No, he was done here. I have considered it greatly, and I will be returning to Rome, where I am needed, Commodus said, and turned and marched out of the tent, followed by his entourage. Commodus had made his first move, and it was a break with the legacy of his father. That conversation is my modernized adaptation of a discussion recorded by the historian Herodian. It's clear that Pompeianus and his father 
Other commanders believed that the Markomannic alliance was on the ropes and that another campaign season would surely finish them off and allow the Romans to annex several new provinces to serve as a buffer for the empire. It's unclear if, as Herodian says, Marcus's advisors really wanted to drive all the way to the North Sea, but it appears that Marcus at least had plans for incorporating Marcomania into the empire, which would have taken some additional effort. But you can't advise someone who won't listen to you, and the numerous talented military commanders, senators, philosophers, and lawmakers who Marcus had asked to look after Commodus while the old emperor was on his deathbed were simply left behind or ignored. With unlimited imperial power and the first of the psychophants who would come to mark his rule whispering in his ear, Commodus made his own path forward. The new emperor authorized a short show of force against a single small German tribe to give his next move a veneer of respectability, and then began negotiating with the Germans. Embassies from the humbled barbarian tribes, expecting to be given harsh terms after their repeated treachery, were surprised to be let off leniently. The status quo would be more or less restored without any great burdens being placed on the Germans. Soon, most of the Roman army was marching back to their forts along the Danube and the Rhine, and the new emperor left for Rome. Just who was this man Commodus, who is so commonly vilified? Ancient historians are unanimous in describing Commodus's murders, corruption, and misrule of his people, and almost none of them portray a good side. It's as if every attribute Marcus Aurelius possessed was flipped on its head and dialed up to eleven in his son. Perhaps the closest the ancient historians come to explaining away Commodus's faults is Dio, who, as a senator, knew Commodus personally. Dio says, quote, This Commodus was not naturally wicked, but was originally as free from taint as any man. His great simplicity, however, and likewise his cowardice, made him a slave of his companions, and it was through them that he first, out of ignorance, missed the better life, and then was attracted into licentiousness and bloodthirsty habits, which soon became second nature. In this, I think, Marcus clearly perceived beforehand. He was nineteen years old when his father died, leaving him many guardians, among whom were numbered the best men of the Senate. But to their suggestions and counsels, Commodus bade farewell, and after making a truce with the barbarians, he hastened to Rome. Unquote. Ironically, Commodus's first major move as emperor, the ending of the Marcomannic Wars without total conquest, in violation of his father's wishes, may have been the only truly positive thing he did during his entire reign. Modern historians routinely question whether Marcus's stated goal of annexing new provinces was at all practical, although it's possible that the ancient Romans had a better grasp of the situation than we do in the modern era. But the territory to be seized was almost entirely empty of infrastructure and taxable property, and had been ravaged by Marcus's scorched-earth policy. Furthermore, the Antonine Plague had so thoroughly depopulated the empire that there was no excess population which could be moved into the new land as colonists. The financial strain of incorporating them into the empire would have been heavy. It's possible that Marcus would never have followed through with the annexations that had been discussed, but Commodus may have done the empire an unintended service by signing peace treaties with the Germans. 
His father's campaign had already so thoroughly neutered Germanic military potential that there wasn't much fight left in them, and the northern frontier would be fairly quiet for the next 70 years, despite the lenient peace treaties. Commodus's retreat, then, probably saved the empire the ruinous expense of attempting to Romanize, Romanize huge swaths of territory that lacked the defensiveness of major river and mountain borders it already possessed. But this retreat from near victory turned the Senate against Commodus just as his reign began, and thanks to what came next, their regard would never be recovered. Back in Rome, Commodus quickly showed how far the apple had fallen from the tree. He seemed to swing precariously between reclusive pleasure-seeker and dangerous megalomaniac. Whereas Marcus had allowed freedom of speech, even from his own worst critics, Commodus quickly reversed this policy. Anyone who spoke against Commodus was likely to be killed. The freedom of Christians to worship without prosecution was also revoked, and Apollonius, a Christian who Marcus had allowed in the Senate, was killed. Marcus had honored the Senate and treated it almost like a partner, but Commodus seemed determined to demean them. Cassius Dio describes one of Commodus's many spectacles in the Colosseum that he was present for. Commodus demanded that all the senators attend, with those failing to show sufficient enthusiasm for the spectacle being killed. Quote, While the contests were going on, we senators invariably attended, along with the knights, save that Claudius Pompeianus the Elder never appeared, but sent his sons, remaining away himself. He chose rather to be put to death for this, rather than behold the child of Marcus as emperor conducting himself so. Besides all the rest that we did, we shouted whatever we were bidden, and this sentence continuously, quote, Thou art Lord, and thou art foremost. Of all the most fortunate, thou dost conquer, thou dost conquer. In everlasting Amazonian, thou dost conquer. Of the rest of the people, many did not even enter the theater, and some managed to steal out quietly, for they were partly ashamed of what was being done and partly afraid. Unquote. Dio describes some of Commodus's bizarre entertainments. There was the time he gathered up the people who had lost feet and legs to disease or war, tied them all together on the floor of the arena, and personally went around bashing in their heads with a club. Another time he combed the city for every dwarf he could find, armed them with cleavers, and ordered them to fight to the death. Yeah. Dio goes on talking about another occasion when, quote, he had killed an ostrich, and cutting off its head, he came toward where we were sitting. In his left hand, he held the spoils, and in his right stretched aloft his bloody sword. He spoke not a word, but with a grin wagged his head to and fro, intimating that he would subject us to this same treatment. And many of us on the spot would have perished by the sword for laughing at him, for it was laughter and not grief that overcame us. Had I not myself chewed a laurel leaf, which I had got from my garland, and brought the rest who were sitting near me to munch similar sprigs, so that in the constant motion of our jaws we might conceal the fact that we were laughing, unquote. So yeah, Commodus liked to show off in the arena, but apparently his showing off vacillated between sickening and laughable. The historians contain stories of him slaying tame animals with no fear of him by the hundreds, plain butchery, and dispatching dangerous animals while they were harmlessly wrapped in nets. He forced professional gladiators to fight him in public and, unsurprisingly, came away the victor pretty much every time. 
He often invited gladiators to fight with him privately at the Imperial Palace, but since the gladiators never dared beat the Emperor, they inevitably lost, and Commodus would frequently cut off an ear or a hand as punishment, or just kill them. Through statues, coinage, and public proclamations, Commodus stressed his godlike status, often comparing himself to Hercules. The Colosseum, where gladiatorial matches took place, was named after the giant statue of the Colossus that stood out in front of it. Commodus ordered its head removed and replaced with one that looked like him. Colossus was also given a club and a bronze lion was placed at its feet, so it looked like Hercules. The emperor began charging the state a million sesterces for each of his appearances in the arena, which quickly bankrupted the treasury. Outside the arena, it would be easy to simply say that he wasn't a good ruler, but the real issue was that aside from a few special occurrences that he gave his personal attention to, he didn't really rule at all. His father had slaved away over the affairs of state, personally updating the law code and selecting talented men to serve as governors. Commodus couldn't be bothered to rouse himself from his debaucheries to do much of anything. Instead, he relied on a series of chamberlains, who were corrupt to varying degrees, to make most administrative decisions. The ones from the later part of his reign, in particular were incredibly crooked, selling off virtually all the imperial administrative positions rather than appointing men based on merit. Under these men, the Roman government reached an unheard of level of dysfunction. The army continued to be paid and given bonuses, however, and the people received regular disbursements of money, bread, and games to keep them happy, so Commodus was able to maintain a fairly reasonable grip on power. However, this largesse put a lot of strain on the empire, which was still undergoing periodic outbreaks of the Antonine Plague, and Commodus had to look for other revenue sources. He found one, killing people and seizing their assets. Often, he would simply find an innocent man who happened to be rich and kill him off to get his property. All told, Cassius Dio tells us that most of the men that had come to positions of power under Marcus, and many of those who had been sworn to look after Commodus ended up being killed by the man. For instance, two talented military commanders that had distinguished themselves commanding operations against the Germanic tribes were a pair of brothers, Condianus and Maximus Quintilus. Not only were they well respected for their talents, but they were rich senators. Neither had so much as raised a finger against Commodus or muttered a rebellious word, but he killed them anyway. Dio says that, quote, their notable talents led to the suspicion that, even if they were not planning any hostile movement, still they were not pleased with the state of affairs, unquote. Two main exceptions from this list of Marcus's friends and confidants were Tiberius Claudius Pompeianus, Commodus's brother-in-law, who turned down Marcus's request to become Commodus's co-emperor, and another commander of high ability but low breeding, Pertinax, who continued to serve Commodus as a military leader. Pompeianus probably only survived because, after Commodus had refused to heed his advice about finishing off the Germanic campaign, he quickly retired from active political life and left for his country estates. He simply stopped attending meetings of the Senate, even when all members were ordered to be present, and apparently so effectively made himself a political non-entity that Commodus didn't really worry about him, even after his wife, Commodus's sister, hatched a plot against the emperor. Commodus killed his sister after finding out about that plot and managed to stay one step ahead of the numerous other conspiracies hatched by his growing list of enemies. 
By the end of his reign, Commodus had killed so many people that I'm just going to follow Dio's lead. He said, quote, I should render my narrative unduly irksome were I to set down carefully every single man put to death by this ruler. All that he dispatched because of false information, because of unjustified suspicions, because of notable wealth, because of distinguished family, because of unusual education, or for any other excellence, unquote. It's worth bearing in mind that Cassius Dio and virtually all the other ancient historians who wrote about Commodus' reign were senators, a group that universally loathed him. But Commodus maintained his grip on power largely through his association with his well-loved father, and due to his popularity with the lower classes of the empire. Had we interviewed these people about Commodus, they may well have praised him as a good emperor. After all, he was clearly a showman in a way that his father was not. He never stinted on giving them great games to watch. He handed out money at regular intervals, kept the grain flowing to the city's poor, and didn't have any major failed wars or natural disasters detain his record. It's entirely possible that other than finding his actions alarming and being worried about what he might do, most lower-class Romans were happy enough with Commodus because he kept the money flowing. It's also worth noting that other than neglecting and appointing corrupting men to imperial offices, the provinces were largely free of Commodus's attention. Almost all his depravities were concentrated in Rome. The people of the provinces likely went on as much as before, busy with the agrarian rhythms which structured their lives, mostly oblivious of their emperor's entertainments except being annoyed by his corrupt officials. Although Commodus's rule was incredible for its lack of active leadership on Commodus's part, Rome actually kind of lucked out. Marcus had thoroughly dealt with both the Parthians on the eastern border and the Germans to the north during his reign, so there were no major adversaries left to take advantage of Commodus's chaos. There was a tribal uprising in Britain, a small-scale invasion of Dacia, and some raiding in North Africa from the Berber tribes, but these were not major threats and were quickly dealt with. Otherwise, Commodus's reign was free from outside military threats. And so Commodus bumped along for more than a decade, free from any test that might have called his abilities into question. To the limited extent that he was active in government, he made some choices that would have struck just about anyone as narcissistic to the extreme, though. I still have trouble believing this because it just seems incredible, but multiple ancient historians tell us this is the case. He renamed Rome Commodiana. He renamed the months of the year after the 12 names he'd incorporated into his lengthy title, renamed the legions after himself, as well as the massive fleet that hauled grain from Egypt to Rome, and even renamed the Senate as the Commodian Fortunate Senate. I'm sure the senators loved that. Finally, after 12 years on the throne, Commodus managed to piss off the wrong people. His own corrupt chamberlain turned against him, and he sent Commodus's wrestling partner, a man named Narcissus, to strangle the emperor. Narcissus found Commodus in the bath, grappled with the man, and quickly strangled him. Apparently, the emperor wasn't channeling Hercules that day. And so, to the best of our knowledge, yes, Commodus was horribly corrupt and negligent, and many people felt the downsides of having him as their emperor. But did he and the men who came after him really start the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire? That remains to be seen. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Turning Wheel. 
So far, this series has concentrated on Marcus, last of the five good emperors, and we've now briefly covered his disappointing heir. But if you've been listening to the introduction to this podcast, you know that this show covers pivot points of human history. So where was the pivot? Marcus ably dealt with the major problems before him, and Commodus, despite his corruption, didn't really have an opportunity to mess anything up too badly. So, is this really a turning point? We'd have trouble really justifying Dio's claim of a new kingdom of iron and rust that happened during this transition. Well, next week we'll be pulling our narrative back to take the wider view. The Roman world has been slowly changing behind the scenes for decades, and the cause of all that rust may not be what you'd imagine. If you've been enjoying this podcast, can you do me two favors? First, please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app or service you use, and write a few words about why you like it. This really helps the show reach more people, which will play a big role in keeping it going. Second, please consider supporting the podcast financially. A number of awesome bonuses, including our bonus episode for this series, episode 9, is available for supporters. Uh, If you would like to become a patron of the show, uh, please go to patreon.com slash theturningwheel. Finally, if you have a question for the Q&A episode, you can send it to me at andrewperlot at gmail.com. That's P-E-R-L-O-T. Thanks. See you next week.